Welcome to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Discovery is all things cowboy essence, people at their best, accomplishing extraordinary achievements. The pronghorn antelope has long been a graceful symbol of the West, a beautiful representation of freedom and elegance as it sprints across the open grassland. Those of us in northern Arizona in the 60s, 70s, and late 1980s even, likely recall seeing herds of pronghorn from Interstate 17 all the way down to the Prescott area. What we noticed, starting in the 1980s, along with the Arizona Game and Fish Department and many others, pronghorn sightings were becoming a little bit more rare. The Arizona Game and Fish Department began studying, monitoring, and taking action to maintain the pronghorn in their habitat. With me in the Hash Knife Studio is Arizona Game and Fish Department Region 2 Supervisor Larry Phoenix. We'll be talking about his work and passion for understanding what pronghorn need to keep them from disappearing from the landscape. Their area that they were living in was shrinking and shrinking and was going to literally blink away. And so it's just neat that the work that was done here back in the 90s and early 2000s and then later 2000s has expanded to affect the entire state. You sure are going to love the conversation with Larry. First, Discovery with Babbitt Ranches acknowledges the heroic efforts of the Arizona Antelope Foundation. This group's admirable mission is to increase pronghorn populations in Arizona through habitat improvements, habitat acquisition, translocation of animals to historic range, and public comment on activities affecting pronghorn in their habitat. We sure do love all these folks and wish them the very best. Now, let's visit with Larry. This is just super that we're having this visit today. Thank you for making this effort. We've been at this for a long time. You've been associated with pronghorn that I know of since at least the early 90s. Yes. And your career along the path of not only pronghorn, but everything else, game and fish as well, has been rather extensive and broad and thorough and and meaningful in a lot of great ways. So we'll we'll get to that. But first, I got to ask you, so... What got you inspired to set your life path along the lines of all things wildlife? Well, it's kind of funny. It started way back, shoot, when I was in school. You know, I grew up my high school through high school in California, but through my family, my father, you know, is a hunter, and we always came to Arizona to hunt. And so I got to liking Arizona, and so that's where I came to school, was to Arizona. Now, my father has been in business, so that's where I started. ASU was in business, and I quickly learned that that wasn't my path. And so transferred to NAU, was in the School of Forestry, quickly learned from there that that's the path I wanted to go, was somewhere outside. And at the time, it was School of Forestry, and um, graduated from the School of Forestry. But I learned through that that the Arizona Game and Fish Department was where I really wanted to work, And so they didn't have a program, a wildlife program at NAU way back then. So then I um, graduated from the School of Forestry here at NAU and then transferred to the U of A with an expectation of getting a master's degree. But because I had to catch up on some wildlife classes, it ended up that I ended up with just a second bachelor's degree in wildlife and fishery science and immediately got hired. I was an intern when I was here at the School of Forestry in Flagstaff. I was an intern for the office, the Game and Fish office here and then moved to Tucson to go to school at U of A. Then um, I was an intern as well for the Game and Fish office down there. And then it just progressed to being a wildlife manager. My first duty post was in Yuma. And then I was 
promoted to a field supervisor while down there. And then I transferred here after the passing of Ray Parent. I got the field position, the field supervisor position that uh, he held. And then I was here for 22 years. I mean, 22 years here in Flagstaff, that's longer than some people's career. And so I didn't realize how long I had been here until I decided at that point in my career, I was now into my career about 25 years, 22 of them here. And I promoted to the regional supervisor in Kingman. But I was like, wow, that was a long time in one position. And during that 22 years is when we did all that pronghorn work on Babbitt ranches and the surrounding areas. And so it was really cool stuff. I was one of the department's net gunners. And so not only was I involved with it on the ground, but, you know, through that, uh, you know, I was the person actually catching him out of the helicopter. So that was neat. With your your career, 25 years plus the Arizona Game and Fish Department, you got that passion still burning that you did when you first started? Well, I do. And so it's interesting when I look at my entire career, looking at uh, an internship and all the, you know, being a game warden and all my promotions and then coming back to Flagstaff. You know, I've been for the department for almost 32 years now. And so that's a long time. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I like my position here. I like being the regional supervisor for the Flagstaff office. Um, it's kind of a coming home, you know, since I was here for such a long time. And I enjoy doing these kind of things because there's a history here. How would you introduce us to to antelope in Arizona? So antelope, the common name that we hear a lot of times is antelope. The true name is pronghorn. Pronghorn that we have in northern Arizona are a little bit different than the pronghorn we have down in uh, the, along the Mexican border, which is Sonoran pronghorn, um, a protected species of pronghorn, total different management. Here, we hunt the pronghorn here in Flagstaff and all through the central parts of Arizona. They're a big game species that's sought after by hunters. They're also a big game species or, or just an animal that's sought after by the folks that enjoy wildlife because they're a beautiful animal. And we have fewer pronghorn now than we did, say, 20 years ago and fewer pronghorn then than we had, say, 50 years ago. Um, we used to do things differently way back in the 60s when this, we had a lot more snow. We were flying and dropping alfalfa and hay to make sure they had feed during the really deep, deep snow times. We have changed our management style now, and we're working with folks like yourself and other ranches and the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management and state land and opening areas up because that's what traditionally pronghorn like that open spaces. Interesting thing, through all of our studying and through all this time, we're finding that they are adapting more and more to the, the thicker habitat. And I don't just mean encroaching habitat where we've got pinning and juniper encroaching on the rangelands, but pine forests. I mean, we're finding pronghorn that are living in pine forest. It's really interesting. Yeah. Through our studies and the stuff we've done on Babbitt Ranches, we've learned their, where they like to travel. We've learned where they like to be. We learned where they like to cross roads, which is a definite problem for pronghorn. Roads and fence lines are very difficult for pronghorn. Elk and deer, they don't seem to really matter much. But for pronghorn, fences are a big deal. Right. And so we've learned a lot where their travel paths are. And, well, heck, we were just here a month ago using some of that information with one of the other projects that you've got going here on, on Babbitt Ranches. And I think that that information is just so important. The 1980s was really a time for a focused awareness of the pronghorn for us on Babbitt Ranches. I remember watching pronghorn race as I drove along Highway 180 out to the Seal Bar Ranch. I realized this is how they behaved and when they felt threatened by a predator. They would run at an angle, keeping an eye on the predator. 
Maybe in this case, my truck, but in the wild, it's more likely to be maybe a coyote. I began to understand that they would use their speed and angle to get out and launch them on a full-on race across the grasslands where they could outpace whatever was chasing them. And that's where my journey with pronghorn began, observing, understanding, and supporting these wonderful animals and really joining in with so many others who were very knowledgeable about pronghorn. At the same time, Larry Phoenix, a biologist, and others with the Arizona Game and Fish Department were on the front end of researching antelope behavior. As Larry mentioned, he was in a helicopter locating the animals and putting radio transmitting collars on them to be able to track them and learn where they were going and how well they were doing as a species. So walk us through a little bit of what does that information gathering look like? How does it take place? What do we got going there? Well, we might as well just start from the very, you know, the beginning of we recognize that there's pronghorn in the area. We recognize that our surveys, our aerial surveys, where we fly around in an airplane and count the pronghorn at certain times of the year, that we're showing that numbers are decreasing. Well, why are the numbers decreasing? And so we start to look at those things. And we recognize through the surveys that we're seeing fewer pronghorn in this area, but maybe a few more over here. And why? And so technology was just starting to catch up to those kind of things. And so back then we had, we worked with a couple companies and they developed radio transmitting collars that you could put on wildlife. And I'm sure a lot of people way back in the 80s and 90s, and they saw that stuff on TV shows and whatnot, but this was real world for us. And it worked off of an FM transmitting frequency where we would recognize where we wanted to go capture these animals, where we wanted to do the study. So we outlined that and then we determined that we wanted to put about 25 collars out because that got us some really good statistical data. That's usually our target. Sometimes we'd put a little more, sometimes we'd put a little less, but then we would get a fixed wing airplane up, put a person in there. They would actually find the pronghorn out in the opens and then they would call us in the helicopter and then we would come in with the helicopter and use a net gun. Um, net gun is uh, the gun that we use shoots uh, about 11 by 11 foot square net weights on four corners um, and shoots out of a handheld gun that looks like it's a rifle with four barrels and it uses a 308 charge helicopter is right on the ground and you know the good old days when we were capturing in the winter we were so low and so close to the pronghorn that the pronghorn were kicking mud up onto the windshield of the helicopter you know that's pretty cool stuff yeah, right so we would put the, the net over that we would shoot the net over the pronghorn and pronghorn are an interesting character because they're designed they're one of their defense mechanisms is speed to avoid predators coyotes um, primarily um, you know, wolves and mountain lions and bears as well, but coyotes is one of their biggest predators. And so their defense is open area, being able to see them coming, and then being able to be fast. Well, what that means is that their bones were designed to be a little bit lighter, give them more, more sprint speed. And as opposed to, say, a bighorn sheep or a deer, where well, their bones are heavier, stronger and they're a more durable critter. So we had to keep that in consideration when we were net gunning animals and how the net went over the animal and, and how the animal went down to protect the animal from getting injured. Bighorn sheep, you just throw the net over them and they crash to the ground and all is good because they're, they're made of steel. Pronghorn are not that way. So you had to be really careful. So we captured the animals, but then back in the 80s and the 90s, we were using those FM collars like you talked about. We have to go out with an airplane and an antenna connected to the bottom of the airplane and and find these animals. And it's just by little blips that you hear in your earphones, and then you try to locate them, and it wasn't an exact science. So then we get to 
just jump ahead. You know, we talked about the 2000s. I think 2007, we transitioned from a whole different group of biologists. You know, at first it was you know, Richard Ockenfels and Rick Miller and myself and you. And then it shifted to another group of guys, Jeff Gagnon, Scott Sprague. And technology was satellites. And so now we were putting satellite collars on. The information we got from the satellite collars, because we were getting GPS points multiple times a day. It was amazing. And you could really tell the travel paths of where these critters were. But the coolest thing about the GPS collars was, you know, from a data thing, that was neat. But the collars then, at a certain time, would drop off the animal. An FM collar, once you put it on, it's on. But the GPS collars, when you put them on, we set time, they actually drop off. So the animal doesn't have to wear the collar the rest of their life. I really like that part of it. As Babbitt Ranches and the Arizona Game and Fish Department were collecting information and refining what we knew about pronghorn, these efforts led to more proactive decisions and projects focused on trying to minimize any potential impact on pronghorn. The first pronghorn collaring project on Babbitt's was in the early 1990s. And that's when I first met Larry and a whole bunch of the other folks there at the Arizona Game and Fish Department studying pronghorn. It was a privilege to work with the Arizona Game and Fish Department and dedicated wildlife biologists on the north of Wapaki as they were beginning their research to learn and understand about pronghorn. Back then with the FM callers that we were using, the data wasn't as refined, but we were recognizing where they were staying in the winter, where they were staying in the summer. We were recognizing that they weren't different populations, but there definitely were different groups of pronghorn, and some groups stayed in areas year-round, some groups moved. I think that almost every collar, every animal we've collared has walked across some part of Babbitt's in this whole you know, two decades of, of stuff. But we started to see where the pronghorn were approaching the highways, um, both Highway 180 that goes from Flagstaff up to Valley, and then Highway 89 that goes from Flagstaff up to Page. We also did some studies later on on Highway 64, but the 180 and 89, there was the two biggest ones that, where we really got down into it. And so when we got to the GPS callers, we were able to quickly define where they wanted to cross. And then working with ADOT and yourself, we were able to remove, in Wapatki also, oh, yeah. we were able to remove some fence or at least move it back the right-of-way fences away from the highway um, 50 yards or so. And that gave the animals, and they could, they didn't have to negotiate two right-of-way fences and a highway in, at one time. They could negotiate the fence, yeah. then the highway, and then the other fence, or there would be no fence depending on what your cattle operations were in that area. So that was really cool. On Babbitt's, The observations got us all thinking about what we could do to help pronghorn negotiate fences so they wouldn't be a barrier for them moving across the landscape. We learned most of the time they wouldn't jump over them, but they might go underneath them if there was enough space. We thought, what if we could raise the bottom rung of that fence and attach it to the wire above it? We started using ordinary PVC pipe. We cut sections of the pipe to about four foot in length and put a slit across it lengthwise in the pipes that we could then slide over the two bottom wires. This was a massive campaign across Babbitt Ranches. We had folks out there applying these for miles across Babbitt Ranch fence line, and they they worked. When we started wondering what we should call these innovations, we tried out words like antelope bars, pronghorn bars, but the name that stuck was goat bars because, well, out on the range, the cowboys and ranch managers and even hunters for the longest time, called pronghorn goats. 
Historically, out on the range, fence lines are sacred. But we knew this was a way to get people to participate in supporting wildlife values and at the same time to preserve other land uses. It brought folks together and helped that conservation ethic to be developed further, not only here at Babbitt's and throughout the Babbitt Ranch community, but also through the broader Southwest. People felt really good about it. And now the simple innovation is being used all over the West and parts of Canada. We use the same thing now for deer and elk to cross over the top of fences. That was a neat thing that came out of that. And, and I think that can be almost you know, directly contributed to your work and Babbitt's work with us on that. And so that was really, really cool. We've had a lot of fun with fence lines. Not only was the goat bars really terrific, but the visits that everybody has had have led to some real unique adjustments, as you had suggested earlier, with regard to fence lines. In particular, you know, moving them away from highways that you know the antelope are crossing the highways. By moving the fence lines further off, it allows them to kind of navigate various obstacles or whatever you may want to call them. The first one that I remember that was big for Babbitt's in the game department was on Highway 180, as you had mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, at Blue Chute. And it was one area on Highway 180 that did not have right-of-way fences on either side. And, you know, interestingly, it paired up with your data that you were collecting with the callers. This is where yep. they cross. Mm-hmm. And so that was coincidental or how it worked out. But it was just a segment that the ADOT had not put fences mm-hmm. up yet. Yep. That's all that was. But they called and said, you know, it's time for us to put fences up. And it was really terrific, the visits that happened so quickly and so wonderfully in order to get ADOT not to put a a right-of-way fence on the south side of 180 there. Babbitts would no longer use that for any grazing activity. And then on the north side, push that fence line way out there. That set a course for a lot of other fence work around the state, right? Absolutely, it did. It was huge in the collaboration that was built off of those few days out there of recognizing what could be done just snowballed into the rest of the state. And because ADOT was involved and ADOT was putting fences and doing road construction and expanding this and that's and everything, but it was the same people, whether it was here in northern Arizona or it was in Tucson or, you know, in the White Mountains, it's still ADOT. And so by working with the Game and Fish Department, it all just kind of progressed from here. And so we've been able to work with ADOT on a lot of projects throughout the state to manipulate where the roads are or to change where the right-of-way fences are. Or, I mean, we've done some pretty crazy stuff and develop overpasses for bighorn sheep and all kinds. And there's talk or has been talk about Highway 89 and the expansion on Highway 89. What we've learned from highways is that 5,000 cars a day is the number that starts to really impact pronghorn. And 89, is yeah. that's there's more than that. Highway 180 is about 2,000. We're still a little safe there, but as we expand, as ADOT expands Highway 89, this is going to become a lot more important. And it's, it's been just, effective, and largely effective, yeah. when you see your data from after yeah. you do your... Yeah. And so it's just neat that the work that was done here back in the 90s and early 2000s and then later 2000s has expanded to affect the entire state. You know, it's interesting. I saw uh, YouTube uh, with our board. I showed it to them uh, in Canada Mm -hmm. demonstrating how to install goat bars. Isn't that funny? And and Montana (laughs) State University has um, 
at their wildlife program there have schematics for how to install goat bars. And, and it was really terrific. I went to uh, West Texas buying bulls down there, and the rancher said that there was a presentation from a biologist from Arizona, came and fish, and, and was in Texas, maybe have moved there and to work on the bighorn projects that they were doing there in Texas. Mm-hmm. So as some of you know, but I didn't get the name, they introduced them to goat bars in West Texas. Mm-hmm. And anyway, they said they were told they were being used in northern Arizona. They thought that was good, and they started using goat bars down there. There's been an effort. Game department has certainly led a huge cultural kind of shift in the way everybody perceives and participates with uh, values associated with pronghorn. And it's really been extraordinary to see it over the years. There's no question about that. Other efforts to help the pronghorn included massive projects with the Arizona Game and Fish Department to keep open spaces open. On the CO bar especially, we were seeing a lot of encroachment from pinyon and juniper trees into the grassland. The Game and Fish and Babbitt Ranches got really proactive with landscape scale projects across the open range. New tools were instrumental in removing trees that were taking over the open range. Tools like the Agarax and the Grinder. It's a giant machine that's connected to the front of a front loader or a bobcat, depending on. And it depends on what you want it to do, but it can either come in and it can cut off at the base the tree, and then we can come in and uh, burn that tree after it's dried. Or they have a giant grinder that's on it, and it'll just grind up an entire giant juniper. And seconds open that country up, and then by grinding it up, it actually leaves litter on the ground that then helps the grass seed germinate because it holds the moisture, it protects it from the sun, it lets the grass germinate. And then once the grass matures, then it can grow itself through that. And, and, but then it opens, it's kind of a multi-step process. And because of our studies, we were able to recognize where the pronghorn wanted to be. As humans, we can say, well, we think a pronghorn wants to be here. But by putting the collars on, they're telling us by their actions where they truly want to be. It's really terrific. In partnership with the game department on Babbitts, it's probably close to 40,000 acres that has been treated. And I appreciate uh, and acknowledge that the game department has also done this with a lot of landowners in northern Arizona and, and I suppose other parts of the state as well, but certainly northern Arizona where there's uh, densities of pinion juniper. The game department has been very proactive in getting those grinders out opening up some country and and doing some good things for not just the pronghorn, but for all the wildlife. Meanwhile, the Babbitts, Game and Fish Department, Forest Service, and the Forage Resource Study Group were all learning a lot more about the health of the pronghorn herds. As wildlife biologists were collaring animals, they also had the opportunity to take blood samples and conduct tests, revealing more information about nutrition and genetics. When we were first catching them back in the mid-90s, it was all about putting on a collar. And it was just all about getting that location data. But as we progressed and started to learn more, what we did when we had the animal in hand greatly increased. So now we take blood samples and fecal samples and throat swabs. So we've got this animal in our you know, hands for about two or three minutes. It takes about five minutes to put a collar on. So it gives you a few minutes to actually collect other biological samples and from that we can find out disease stuff and genetics and all kinds of other information and then we can tap it into the nutrition based on you know what their blood shows us and those kind of things and then at the same time you mentioned the forest service forest resource study group which is made up of ranches and the game and fish department and then the hpc groups that were here which babbage is part of the all of that we were doing 
forage monitoring and measuring the grasses in relation to primarily elk and cattle, but you know the rain and the precipitation. And we were doing this collectively. And all of this information was all starting to come together and gave us a lot more information to make sound biological decisions with not just pronghorn, with all of the species that are here, everything from golden eagles to pronghorn to the elk to the deer to skunks, you know, it all revolves around itself. Um, And so, but we were able to utilize all that information and it's been a big collaborative effort by everybody involved. Interestingly, along with learning more about foraging needs and ground cover, we began to understand that timing is critical when it comes to when the pronghorn are having their fawns. The thing about fawning is, so just talk about pronghorn, because that's the the key here, is that during the fawning period is they needed to have good ground cover to protect the pronghorn fawns from coyotes. We talked about coyotes, number one predator here in Arizona for pronghorn. And when the fawns are dropped in, uh, you know, that April time frame, that there needs to be some good ground cover. And so by managing the habitat, we can do the best we can do. Mother Nature has a big part of this. You know, it's got to rain, as you know. But we can open up country. And again, the caller information told us where the pronghorn wanted to be at certain times of the year and what kind of habitat they were in. So maybe it wasn't completely open. They transitioned to an area that was mostly open because they got to be able to see but there was other cover there. And so that would be part of our management of what we are going to do when we do an opinion juniper treatment. We're not going to cut it. Maybe we're not going to cut every tree based on that information. And so, um, you know, it just all is so intertwined. With this new information, all of us working in land and wildlife management had hard facts about how antelope were being impacted by development. This was very important to the Babbitt Ranch community to understand, beware of the movement corridors. For the Arizona Game and Fish Department, the information helped developers know where to leave open spaces for pronghorn and mule deer and other animals to travel. We've got development all across Arizona, but when you combine development into pronghorn habitat, we actually find ourselves in the Prescott, Prescott Valley area. That right there is the pivotal point where the Arizona Game and Fish Department, three years ago, went into a place called Glassford Hill, which is right in the heart of Prescott Valley, and actually captured animals and moved them because their habitat was now completely surrounded with development, houses. And then the country that was left was going to be developed over time. Their area that they were living in was shrinking and shrinking and was going to literally blink away. So they had no place to go. So we went in and captured them and moved them to southern Arizona. But what we've learned through putting collars on animals and doing studies on pronghorn in that area, just like here up in northern Arizona around Babbitts, is where they like to be. And then how their movement has changed as development has encroached onto their habitat. Knowing where they'd like to be led to a monumental decision by the Babbitt family and Babbitt ranch owners largely because of a passion for pronghorn conservation and the desire to sustain the population. Through the Babbitt's conservation philosophy and land use ethic, important decisions were made based on that data and put into motion landscape-scale conservation actions. In a significant agreement with Coconino County and the Nature Conservancy, the Babbitt's identified Cataract Ranch, including Cataract Canyon south of the Grand Canyon, to be put into a conservation easement, meaning that huge scenic section of land would be set aside as open space in perpetuity. 
This action also underscored Babbitt's intention that the land would not be divided into 40-acre ranchettes or consumed by other housing developments. We also learned we could have a direct impact on the ingress and egress of populations of pronghorn migrating around and through the ranching operations, which would allow them to interact with other pronghorn populations and keep the genetics strong. Let's hit renewable energy. Wind turbines Mm -hmm. need to go where there's wind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Solar has a little bit more flexibility. There seems to be a a strong push to head towards renewable and and get it developed. And this is going to have some impacts on wildlife that need to be addressed and mitigated. For Babbitts, you know, this is a a great opportunity for us. We have the power lines come through the ranches. Mm -hmm. That's great access to put the the load of electricity on the lines and ship it off. With all of that, there are, you know, broader conservation values that need to be incorporated into these renewable energy project developments. Pronghorn, that would be the key species here for us to maybe visit about, but at the same time, it's broader than that. How's the game department beginning to, you know, investigate and participate in these discussions? This has been a thing for... 10 years, maybe 15. Granted, 15 years ago, it was at the very beginning stages of this wind and solar and, and the different um, methods of that. Um, wind turbines were smaller. They look more like a natural w- a windmill that we've seen on the landscape for a long time. Fast spinning blades and smaller diameter. And then they, now they're 100 foot long blades and they, you know, they still move fast, but they don't look like it. But there's, but there's that impact of putting the infrastructure in the roads, the actual towers, the power lines, and the how you're going to get the energy from the turbine to the power line and control centers. And so all that takes up that habitat that we've been talking about. Then you transition and you have solar fields that are, they're more condensed, but they are more impactive of the area that they actually reside on. A, um, a wind turbine is one turbine, and then you s- it's spread out with good habitat between. And we've done studies where we knew wind turbines were coming in, I'm sticking with wind turbines at first year because we've got a few different wind turbine fields here around Flagstaff that I was part of. And so we knew they were coming. We went out there and we put collars out on animals, primarily pronghorn, to see where they went and to see how that was going to be affected. Then the turbines went in and then we continued to put collars out. And then we learned information. How did they react to the wind turbines? And the pronghorn, they just seem to just kind of do their thing. It's really not as big of a deal. But there's other species that are of concern that we have to be careful of. And we just work collectively with the energy company or the landowner to do that. When we shift over to solar, the solar fields are, like I said, more inclusive on a piece of area. And so we are looking at now, okay, well, where do the pronghorn move? Where do the mule deer move through? And how is that going to be affected by the fence line put in to go around the solar field? There aren't really fence lines to go around the wind turbines, but on a solar field, there's things that need to be protected. Um, And so a fence line is part of the project. But then when you put the fence in, can we adjust the fence? Can we adjust where the solar fields go to allow the pronghorn to flow through? The solar fields have to be in certain areas, but the area has to be a certain, not necessarily level, but it can't be hilly and, and those kind of things. And so the game department has learned from working with other energy companies, you know, how work with the energy company. And, you know, it's not our place, it's private property. So it's not the game department's place to dictate a thing such as habitat on private property, but the game department is here to help and work collaboratively with the energy department or, or the private landowner to provide biological and sound science of this is what we've recognized in the past. 
these are the things that we recognize and we would like to work with you. And we've been pretty good and, and the energy companies have been pretty good to work with us as well. And simple things of, of just recognizing where the travel corridors are. And when you put a fence in, leave a gap at the bottom so the smaller critters can get in because there's going to be predator raptors, golden eagles, bald eagles, red tail hawks, all those things. If you leave the fence up, you can allow the smaller critters to get in and out of the solar fields because it's a good place for them to be. But at the same time, when you build a fence, you don't build it so that it creates a cul-de-sac of such so that larger animals don't get trapped and allow them to naturally pass through the areas without or with very little impact. Recreation is another land use that wildlife and land managers monitor and study to understand its impacts. Hiking, getting outside a foot has very little impact. But what we've shown as humans is that we like to do a lot of other things other than hiking and that one of those is getting out in motorized vehicles. I'll just jump right to the last two years with COVID. Been a huge increase in outdoor recreation. It's been an increase twofold. One, more people are just getting out. And those people getting out increases the amount of times that wildlife and pronghorn are in the same place as the recreators are. And these aren't folks that are out there just driving willy-nilly. These people are just out there. They're in their vehicles. They park. They set up their tent. They set up their RV. And they camp. And so we have to recognize that some of these folks are new to the game. They might have done this when they were kids, and then they didn't. They went to football games and baseball games. And then with COVID and such, now there's just more of them out there. So we have to look at it that way. But then so we just need to educate those folks of where and how and those kind of stuff. But what the biggest impact that we're seeing is the motorized activity that's out there. There's been a huge increase in inside by side activity, the smaller UTVs that we see out there. It's a legitimate recreation. It just has to be managed at such, and people just have to be educated to recognize that they're not the only ones out there that are using this land. And that impact, if it's in the fawning time frame, it makes a huge difference if people are out running around in pronghorn habitat when the pronghorns are dropping their fawns. Because we want to make sure that the does can stay with the fawns to protect them from the coyotes, like we talked about before. And if you've got a bunch of people hiking and walking and driving around, then the pronghorn are getting bumped away from their fawns because their fawns can't keep up at that time because they're just little critters. And so then that gives the coyotes an opportunity to get in and, and find those fawns. And then as you progress through the year, you get into the summer when the bulk of southern Arizona, Phoenix, the people in Phoenix, are coming to northern Arizona because it's beautiful. Though it's hot down there and it's yes. amazingly beautiful here. So they all come up here. So we have to manage that as well. And so there is a huge impact on pronghorn and all wildlife and the habitat itself. We just have to work through because it's not something we can say no to. It's here. Specific to Babbitts and the game department, you have a program that you have all over the state of Arizona, these compact agreements, to put some things in place that help mitigate and minimize some of that impact or at least educate. Yes. And that compact program is working well. Yeah. And so it is working well. And it started with just a few ranches. And the way the compact works, it's directed a lot at the sportsmen because a lot of the sportsmen, the hunters in the state are hunting on ranches like Babbitt's. The compact helps the ranches to develop specific rules for the ranch because not all ranches have the same issues. And so not all ranches need the same rules. And these aren't laws. We're not changing any law but we're providing the ranch the ability to develop the rules that are needed for that ranch. And those rules, you have to follow the rules 
or then you don't have permission to be there. It's private land. Then it falls on a law, trespass. And so then by trespass, we can tell people they can't be here. But it's been a really good program. There are several ranches in it now. And if a person violates ranch rules and is cited for trespass off of the ranch, then they're not only trespassed from that ranch, they're trespassed from all the ranches that are within the landowner compact. And so that can mean a lot mm -hmm. to the sportsmen of Arizona. It's a neat program. It's been a success across the state so far. It really does help also to educate as well. I mean, it brings up issues that allow folks to think about them, hopefully kind of filter through, you know, not only in the compact areas, but also onto the lands that aren't in compact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that maybe some of these rules are starting to kind of make sense or at least fit somehow or another and apply to other areas as well. Meanwhile, the Arizona Game and Fish Department uses hunting as a management tool. We use hunting as a tool to maintain a biologically sound population of animals, even though we don't know exactly what that number is. But we can use our data that we gather every single year to understand where the health of the herd or the wildlife are. We use hunting to do that. And we adjust our hunting permits based on our surveys, and we use hunting success as another data point to look at whether we should be increasing our permits or decreasing our permits. We primarily hunt the male side of the species. We hunt the bucks, buck pronghorn, buck deer, and bull elk, because female side, the, the does and the cows, you know, that's your population creation side. That's where you get your numbers from. Now, we do hunt for elk. We hunt we have cow hunts um, all across the state or where the elk reside, but we do not hunt pronghorn does because that would be detrimental to the population. We do have a few deer doe hunts, but they're in places like the Kaibab, where that's the heart of mule deer country for the United States, not alone Arizona. And so, but for pronghorn, we only hunt the bucks and it's very few because we know that it only takes X number of bucks to breed X number of does and we have excess bucks out there. And so it provides an opportunity for sportsmen. It helps keep the herds healthy. And then that is where the Game and Fish Department gets the bulk of its funding is from the sale of hunting licenses, fishing licenses, and big game permits. Wildlife are enjoyed by everybody, but the hunting public is who is actually funding the bulk of the management of wildlife in Arizona. So Larry, with the Arizona Game and Fish Departments looking to the future mm -hmm. and the next generation, yes, what is it that you need to be handing off to them? Ethics is a huge thing, and ethics covers everything across the board. So you mentioned fair chase. Well, that fair chase targets the sportsmen, and we used a lot of fair chase in the trail camera discussions during the last year, and trail cameras are now banned for the use of take of wildlife. You can still use a trail camera to do a lot of things, but you just can't use any of that information for take of wildlife. Technology now is providing a means for us to hunt in ways that just is not fair to the wildlife, hence fair chase. When you have a rifle that basically doesn't even fire until such time that the two dots cross, you know, that that's not ethical and not fair chase. So that aside, 
ethics should be part of everybody's outdoor experience. And we talk a lot about sportsmen and fair chase. Well, that's how they get the ethics through fair chase. But then we talked about the recreators and all the other folks that are out there recreating on the land. Well, there's ethics with that. Ethics are, it's about where you drive, where you camp. Don't leave any litter out there. Packing out everything that you packed in and not camping on water and recognizing when something where you could camp there at one day, but because of the conditions, let's just call it a drought, we shouldn't probably camp here now because it's damaging to the habitat or it's preventing the animals to getting to the one water source they have. Or look at it from the other perspective. We've had a great rain and now everything is just a sloppy mess. And so maybe we shouldn't drive down this road because somebody's going to have to come back and fix this road after I drive down and they create the ruts and that kind of stuff. You know, so ethics is huge. And those are just simple examples of what ethics truly are. But when you get down to the crux of it, the outdoors is there for everybody to enjoy. And so when you're out there, you should, regardless of what you're doing, recognize that what you do impacts so many things. And so you want to have a good time. You want to enjoy but you don't want it to be detrimental to the pronghorn that we've been talking about for the last hour. Perfect. Okay, that's really awesome. Well, Larry, I, this has been a, a real terrific visit, and it will certainly be greatly appreciated for many years to come. You know, this documented a lot of history as well as some fundamentals regarding pronghorn and habitat. And on behalf of the Babbitt family and broader community, there's no way to overstate the honor and privilege and respect and joy that has gone along with being a part of these discussions and these efforts with everybody at the game department, the individuals and as an organization as a whole for a very long time. And it's really interesting, but you and I've been on parallel rails for both our careers, uh, you know, 35 years. And so to have this today really means something to have this conversation today. Thank you for everything you do, for all of the folks, I guess we better acknowledge that have been a part of, in particular, the Pronghorn Project. And we know who they are, and they have really been something special in this effort. With the Babbitt family, in particular, over the years, some of our most formative and meaningful conversations have been centered on Pronghorn with game department officials at the meetings and visits and so on. But because of what it really, truly overall means, and it does mean something about Pronghorn specifically, but to the broader community of folks working together regarding those values and integrating the various values that are around and putting it all together to do something special for the future of Arizona. So thank you, Larry, for all that you do. Thank you very much. And really right back at you with with thanks, because if Fabbit Ranches didn't operate like it does, this country would look a lot different. And that collaboration between us, the Game and Fish Department, and Babbitt Ranches has been huge. And it's been for a long time. And it's really made a difference on the landscape. And so, thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Arizona Game and Fish Department, District 2 Supervisor Larry Phoenix. Discovery with Babbitt Ranches acknowledges the Arizona Antelope Foundation, helping to sustain pronghorn herds across the state. Discovery with Babbitt Ranches is recorded from the Hash Knife Studio in the historic Babbitt building of downtown Flagstaff. The podcast explores all things cowboy essence, land stewardship, conservation, science, agriculture, recreation, business, and community. Have a super day. I'm Billy Cardasco.